This episode is brought to you by Seed. Probiotics are most effective when they make it to your colon, alive. That's why Seed developed a patented two-in-one capsule that safeguards viability of its DSO-1 daily symbiotic through digestion to deliver the maximum dose to your colon. No refrigeration necessary. Visit seed.com slash Spotify and use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25% off your first month. Today on CityCast Madison. It's Thursday, so of course we're dishing on Madison's food scene. It's frosty out, and if you're like me, this time of year is rough because the delicious local food has gone away. No more bountiful garden. Bye-bye, fresh tomatoes. But I know a guy who says, not so fast. You can eat locally year-round, even here in snowy Wisconsin. His name's Sam Thayer, and he's written the book on foraging wild food here. Several books, actually. And he's speaking in Madison this weekend, so I had to ask him what he's eating. It's Thursday, November 2nd. I'm Molly Stentz, and here's what Madison's talking about. Sam, you're best known for your field guides to foraging in Wisconsin, but it's November and it's frosty. What is there to forage this time of year? So, you know, a lot of people think of foraging as a very seasonal activity in that you can only do it certain times of the year. And I think of it as something that you can do all year, but what's seasonal about it is the things that I'm doing. When I say foraging, I'm including the harvest and the preparing and eating wild food. So in the wintertime, I'm still cracking nuts and grinding grains and cooking with wild things that I have stored throughout the year. Um, and there's a lot of processing to do for some of these things, like say, I will pick a whole bunch of hazelnuts in mostly late August, early September. And then I will have to get the dry them, get the husks off. And then I crack them, separate them, and then periodically throughout the year, make hazelnut milk. And that's more of a winter activity than a, than a summer activity. Yeah. Wait, do you have a machine that does that? Because that's a lot of work. So, well, you know, food preparation from scratch, no matter what it is, is a lot of work. But I harvest the hazelnuts by hand and then I dry them. Um, and then I actually will put them into a wooden barrel and dance on them, stomp on them with my feet, just like I do with wild rice and um, a, a number of other things to process, um, which is a really effective way to get the dried husks off. And then you just winnow it off. And many years ago, when I first ate wild hazelnuts, I thought these are really good, but they're a piddly waste of time. It takes forever just to get a few, but I'll eat them every now and then as a snack. But then somebody got me about 20 years ago, this Dave built nutcracker, this design for hazelnuts. And I can crack a five gallon bucket of hazelnuts in 12 minutes. Wow. Um, and that's very much changed what hazelnuts have been to me. Um, so I can crack them only maybe twice a year and just, a, you know, 15, 20 minutes of cracking each time and then have all the hazelnuts I could eat through the course of a year. Yeah. Do you also collect walnuts? Because there are so many walnut trees around Wisconsin, but they are such a chore. Do you have a trick for walnuts? 
I do collect black walnuts, not in huge quantities. Um, they're not as common here in northern Wisconsin, but we have a couple on our property. And I don't really have a trick. It's a fair amount of work, but it doesn't feel more laborious than a lot of the things that I do. So I actually will take the hulls off right under the tree. I stomp on them um, when the hulls are at the right softness. It's a light stomp. And then I just twist it each nut as I pick it up and pull the nut out of the husk. Um, and then after I get the nuts like that, then I rinse them off. And some people use like a power washer or something, but yeah, it's too much work and it's not much benefit. You know, I, I rinse them once and then I dry them and then they're pretty clean. And then I just crack them as I need them th through the winter. But this time of year, late fall is probably when I harvest the greatest amount of the calories that I harvest through the year. So on Sunday, I collected 67 and one half gallons of hickory nuts under one tree. Um, and this is on the property of somebody that I know. Um, and he doesn't want lots of squirrels in the yard. So he likes me to pick up all the hickory nuts. And I like to pick up all the hickory nuts. So I'm going to press these for oil and I'll get about five gallons of oil from what I picked in four hours. Wow. So I have a lot of fun being a squirrel for half a day. <laughs> And then um, I get literally more oil than our family could use in a year. We'll use about three and a half gallons in a year. Um, and then I've got really good locally sourced organic cooking oil for and fresh oil for everything I want to cook year round. So other than nuts, what are some of the other things that you're actively collecting or foraging this time of year? Uh, lambs quarter seeds, we'll put up a few pounds of those through the winter. And I actually take the hulls off by dancing them in a barrel and winnowing, just like I do with wild rice and just with, like I do with the hazelnuts. Wait, what do you, uh, what do you do with the lambs quarter seeds? You use it just like quinoa. Oh. And quinoa is a species, the same genus as lambs quarters. Um, and lambs quarter seeds taste almost identical to quinoa. So you're boiling it and making like a pilaf. Yeah. Yep. We're using it like a hot cereal or sometimes um, grinding it in a dry blender to mix it with flour and various things we might bake. There's a lot of stuff. Anything you could do with quinoa, you could do with the lamb's quarter seed. Yeah. And they're abundant. Okay. When you're talking like nuts or starchy grain type products, all of these things take sort of like some capital and some skills before they're useful to you. So I always think the best way to introduce people to foraging is through berries because people can just pick them and stick them right in their mouth or greens because wild greens have every advantage over grocery store greens. There's more variety. There's better flavor. There's better quality. And most of the year I can go get wild greens within walking distance of my house much more quickly than I could get store-bought greens, <laughs> which I would have to drive 20 miles to the store to get lower quality greens and pay money for them. And greens are fairly expensive in terms of, well, you know, a, a lot of things, like if you imagine gathering a wild root vegetable and then you compare that to the price of potatoes, you might think, well, was this really worth it? But greens are so easy to gather. And so perishable. And so perishable, right. So it's, I'd rather just go get them and use them that same day. So even now in this freezing cold weather, we're getting a good flush of greens of uh, sochan or cut leaf cone flour. Uh, water leaf, dandelion, 
Um, and, you know, I like to just take these things this time of year and kind of chop them up, mix them, fry them with mix it with wild rice or other vegetables. And it's just a really nice way to add some variety to the diet. Um, so we don't think of fall as a good time for greens, but a lot of our native woodland plants will send out a new flush of greens in the fall. And then you get some plants like wintercress is called wintercress for a reason. That's a mustard where the greens taste best in the winter when, you know, um, freezing seems to make the greens taste a lot better and they're very frost proof. Like a little sweeter. It brings out the sweetness. Yeah. And it also, there's some bitterness that's there in the summer that's, that's not there in the winter. So this is like the optimum time to collect wintercress um, until it's covered by snow and you can't find it. And like right now, cranberries, not many people pick wild cranberries, but there's a lot of them. And um, there's something you can pick in big quantity and then, you know, we'll make cranberry sauce or I haven't picked cranberries yet. So I hope this snow melts. The high bush varieties. They're easy to get to, but I'm thinking of the regular bog cranberries. So um, high bush cranberries are problematic because there's a native species that is good to eat. There's a European species that is very, very bitter. Um, And especially in southern Wisconsin, you see about 90 to 98 percent the European high bush cranberry planted. The actual native high bush cranberry is very hard to find in southern Wisconsin. So a lot of people believe that fruit tastes worse than it actually does. I don't make cranberry sauce from high bush cranberries. I make cranberry juice. And so a lot of the a lot of the plants that you were talking about um, that you mentioned in your books are classified as weeds, right? I mean, is there a plant that you wish for the landscape that more people in Wisconsin would eat? Well, you know, there is a lot of people kind of promoting the idea of eating invasive plants. Um, And it's a little bit problematic in that our most invasive plants tend to not be very good edibles with the exception of garlic mustard. But I can't eat enough garlic mustard to really put a dent in the local population. (laughs) But a lot of our worst invasive plants are not really edibles like buckthorns. Autumn olive, though, is an invasive shrub, which is one of my favorite fruits. Again, you can't really put a dent in it by harvesting it. Wait, what are you doing with those? They make the best fruit leather. I don't make jam very often, but they make really good jam. They make really good pie. Wow. I just love to just stuff my face with autumn olives. It's one of my favorite fruits in the world. And so you're, but you're not eating them raw. I love to eat them raw. Yeah. I mean, I'll eat a quart at a time. I'll eat until I just like like when I go berry picking and it's and, and something's just perfect, but blueberries, service berries, autumn olives, I just eat until I can't stand it anymore. <laughs> it's like it's you know, it's like you get to be like a kid in a candy store, except you don't have to feel bad about it. <laughs> well, and I imagine that there's also a lot of roots this time of year. I've seen that you We'll talk about eating like burdock roots and thistle roots. Are, are those something that you actively go out and collect? Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, So burdock roots are good, but they're so large, it's hard to get to the tender part because the top part of the root tends to be tougher and then it gets more tender as you get towards the bottom. And a root that's 30 inches long, you know, it's hard to get anything that's below yeah. like 50 inches underground. Um, But if you can find burdock, in very soft soil and get those roots out, they're excellent. Um, However, all thistles, 
which are really closely related to burdocks, also have edible roots. And not to get too technical here, but we have a bunch of species of thistle, and we have two of them that are really good root vegetables, good enough that I'm experimenting with growing them. What? No. Sam, no. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. Um, so we have the native pasture or prairie thistle, that's Circium discolor, and then the woodland thistle or tall thistle, Circium altissimum, especially that last one. These are so good. I mean, the roots are just incredible. Um, and I think they would be a great crop to grow interspersed with another native crop like pawpaw or native mulberry or or nut trees. And they were widely eaten by Native Americans and uh, just delicious root vegetable. Wow. Um, and you can eat the thistle stalks on so early summer. You get thistle stalks and then in the fall and through the winter, as long as the ground's not frozen, you can get the roots. God, I feel like there's so many of them. There's no need to cultivate those suckers. They, <laughs> You're talking thistles in general. Yeah. I'm talking about specific kinds of thistles. Like, so in the Madison area, you're seeing lots of bull thistle sure. primarily. Uh, a little bit of, of nodding thistle and plumeless thistle. All those are non-native weedy thistles. Right. Um, but actually, the attitude that you're, you're showing there is kind of actually problematic. I was visiting a, a, a nature center. I'm not going to name it that has a restored tall grass prairie. Mm -hmm. And they have a problem that they can't get the native thistles in there because uh, people that work at the nature center keep spraying them with herbicide. Oh, so so they're eliminating eliminating all their native thistles because the attitude that thistles are bad is really hard for people to get rid of. But we do have some not only delicious, but really beautiful native thistles that are common throughout Wisconsin. Yeah. OK. Well, and I wanted to ask you, I've always been curious about ginseng and I know that it's, you know, pretty highly regulated and you have to have a license uh, and whatnot. Um, is that something that you forage for wild ginseng? No, never. How come? Wild ginseng is so rare um, I would argue that it's absurd that it's legal to harvest. So if you do find wild ginseng, quote, wild ginseng out in the woods in Wisconsin, most of the time it's planted by somebody there. Mm. Um, I can you you could give me um, a, a state endangered species, uh, you know, many of them, and, and I could go out and find them for you. No problem. Ginseng, which has no such listing. It's going to be really hard for me to find actual wild ginseng. I think I know three locations in the state that have it. And I put on many thousands of miles on foot off trail in the state. So it's extremely localized. There's virtually none in the Wausau area. And it's just too valuable. I mean, when something's worth two or $3,000 a pound, it doesn't stay out in the woods. Um, yeah. I don't care. How, I don't care what they do to regulate it. Um, there are people uh, where it persists is landowners that protect their property and they may sustainably pick the ginseng on their own property and they protect it from the unscrupulous commercial harvesters that are wandering around trespassing. But from public lands with public access, you will almost never see wild ginseng anymore. Yeah. So what are your personal ethics when it comes to foraging? Well, that is really related to each individual plant and also, I guess, tailored to each individual location. But the overall idea is that you, you want to be foraging in such a way that you are not harming the, the populations of any of the things that you're foraging. Um, but once people start foraging, they tend to take it beyond that to 
um, where they think of themselves as caretakers of the plants that they're foraging. You do occasionally get people mostly that are new to foraging um, that don't understand um, how easy it could be to cause a decline of a certain plant and may over harvest it. But things like nuts and berries, for example, are, I mean, you're not going to hurt an apple tree or apple population by harvesting the apples. I'm just using that as an example. Um, sure. Whether it's wild plums, crab apples, blueberries, service berries, mulberries, whatever it is, they produce thousands of times more seed than they need to actually you know, reproduce themselves. When you're collecting root vegetables, where the plant has a single edible part and the plant is killed to get that part. So we go back to the native thistles we're talking about. You uh, dig up a native thistle and eat the root. You have, you have to kill the plant to do that. So then your stewardship becomes way more important in that situation. Are you foraging in public lands, natural areas, um, places, people's land that you know personally? Um, all of those. So, for instance, in Wisconsin state parks, you can collect nuts, berries, mushrooms um, for personal consumption. And I do that when I'm in the state parks, um, in the state forests um, and the county lands around me. Same rules. Um, as far as digging up root vegetables, I'm doing that mostly on private land, a lot on my land. I also have neighbors, people that I know who are fine with that. So it really depends when you're in an urban area. Uh, a lot of times there's weedy plants and nobody cares if you pick chickweed from the lawn in a park, but, uh, your bigger worry is whose dog might've peed here or who might've sprayed this herbicide. Uh, right. That's what I would yeah, think. Her Herbicide is herbicide is is the biggest worry for foraging, in my uh, opinion now, um, and and a lot of people don't realize how much the use of herbicide has just exploded in the last twenty five years. Yeah, so for people who want to learn more, people who are wanting get started, you're giving a talk at Ulbrich this weekend at the Madison Herb Fair. Where do you recommend people start? Well, I recommend that people start with one plant. Um, so if I if, if you think about learning foraging, it can sound intimidating. It's like learning Japanese, learning German. But um, you can use one plant once you know that one plant. So learn one at a time. And you don't need to know any additional plants to use the one you already know. And I recommend starting with something that is familiar to you. If there's a plant that's in your neighborhood, try to identify it. And if you identify a familiar plant that you see a lot uh, in your neighborhood, the chances are better than 50-50 that it has an edible part. And the worst thing that happens is you wasted your time learning a plant that's not edible, which isn't a waste of time. Yeah. What about, though, plants that are poisonous? You don't eat those. Yeah. <laughs> you only do it once, right? <laughs> well, you know, the, uh, the, the interesting thing is, is that that the fear of eating a poisonous plant tends to be a really prevalent fear among non-foragers and beginning foragers. Um, once people start foraging, they realize that there's nothing random about it. Um, you only intentionally put things in your mouth and you have a clear grasp on when you do or don't know what something is. So you've probably never eaten an apple and wondered if it wasn't an apple. Um, and that's exactly how you should feel about every wild thing you ever eat. If you if you're wondering what the thing is, then you you have no business eating it. You 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 eat something only after you're at the point where you are, are 
thoroughly and absolutely confident about what it is. And that's never the first time you encounter it. Um, So, you know, people might imagine that forging is going out and finding new unfamiliar things and trying them out. Nope, that's no part of forging. That's never a part of forging. Um, You only try things once they are completely and absolutely familiar to you. Sam Thayer, thank you for joining us today. We will link to your workshop at the Madison Herb Fair at Oldbrook Botanical Gardens. Well, thank you so much. It was an honor to be on talking to you. That was Sam Thayer, author of The Forager's Harvest and a number of books about edible native plants in Wisconsin. He's speaking at the Madison Herb Fair at Oldbrook Botanical Gardens this Saturday, November 4th. We've got a link with all the details in our show notes. And here's what else Madison's talking about. School. Starting next Monday, some Madison schools will have slightly different start and end times. That's because many school buses have been late getting kids to school on time. The school bus company says they're having trouble finding enough drivers. So Madison's school officials are changing the time school starts and ends to deal with the problem. And the state's largest power company is phasing out coal sooner than we expected. We Energy says they're planning to stop burning coal by 2032, about eight years away. That's according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, who had a reporter sit in on the We Energy's earnings call this week. We Energy's plans to shut down the oldest part of the coal-burning power plant at Oak Creek in Milwaukee next year and switch it over to natural gas. The company originally said that was supposed to happen this year, but they got delayed. They're also building solar and wind farms across the state. That's all for today here on CityCast Madison. I'm Molly Stenz. If you enjoyed the show, why not share this episode with someone you think would like to eat thistle roots? Let me know how that goes. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more stories from around the city. Ciao.